questions you always had. The answers you were never given. The place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. Tonight's discussion will focus on the latest theories, research, and application of -of out-of-body experiences, OBEs, and other consciousness states that transcend the limitations of one's physical body space. It will feature original chapters from leading international researchers, educators, and practitioners who specialize in OBEs. Our guest aims to meld contemporary scientific evidence with the latest and most compelling practical applications of OBEs. We'll explore consciousness beyond the body. Don't go anywhere. You are listening to Veritas. If this is your first time, welcome home. To listen to tonight's full interview and all of our material, join the Veritas family and click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. You can make your purchase with a credit card, PayPal, cash, check, money order, and even cryptocurrency. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for focused life force energy, MMS, rebounders, pure organic sulfur, flash drives with all our Sanitas and Veritas seasons, and other great products. And if you want to get in touch with Mel, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button of our website at veritasradio.com. And now, here's your host, Mel Hostelrick. Dr. Alexander Defoe is a Melbourne-based researcher with expertise in human consciousness and perception and is a founding board and director of the Australian Centre for Consciousness Studies. Dr. Defoe has carried out numerous projects on the role of self and body integration in the feature-binding problem, as well as the use of modern technology in transforming mind-body perceptions. He has worked extensively on research in altered states of consciousness, including those apparent in the use of mindfulness, meditation, clinical hypnotherapy, entheogens, and induction via modern technologies. He has also lectured on these topics, including teaching expertise in the philosophical antecedents of modern psychology, exceptional human experiences, and higher degree subject. He created on Eastern models of self and personality and has published in leading academic journals, such as Cognitive Neuropsychiatry, Clinical Psychology, and Psychotherapy, and the Journal of Affective Disorders, He is the author of the books titled Consciousness Beyond the Body and Hearts in Transcendence, and also additional papers that challenge the field of human potential. His website is alexdefoe.com, and he joins us directly from Melbourne, Australia, where it's really early in the morning. Good morning, Dr. Defoe, and welcome to Veritas. How are you? Hi, Mel. Uh, Thanks so much for having me on. I'm great. My pleasure. May I call you Alex? Uh, yeah, of course. Wonderful. Well, before we begin, just to share some background with the audience so they get to know you better, I want you to share with us a unique experience you had over a decade ago that sparked your interest in altered states. Definitely, yeah. So I've pretty much um, been drawn to many of these uh, topics in metaphysics and philosophy uh, from a young age, uh, but also had some uh, interesting um, psycho-spiritual experiences um, growing up that were not necessarily that easy to integrate and uh, make sense of, um, especially trying to, you know, kind of place them in a uh, broader community and um, understanding amongst, you know, what this actually is. And one of those was uh, an out-of-body uh, type state um, that I experienced. And this is really what sparked my interest in 
trying to understand consciousness uh, from a scientific framework. Um, so after I had uh, some experiences um, with altered states growing up, this kind of led me to look at um, a lot of esoteric literature on the topic and really find that there's a lot of uh, lacking um, clarity around some of these experiences, uh, which is what really drew me to try to, you know, scientifically measure them, uh, as well as, you know, understand them in more, uh, in a more methodical way, which is um, definitely easier said than done. Um, but it is uh, a, a fascinating um, topic to delve into. The first question I have for you is one, Alex, that I frequently ask my guests all the time, and I usually get a different answer always. What is consciousness? Uh, yeah, great question. Um, so we define it very specifically within a psychological um, context, but even there, you know, we see kind of conflicting theories around uh, what consciousness is. And of course, this is um, a big debate, um, you know, presently with technology and artificial intelligence as well. Uh, but there is um, an aspect of conscious experience that is very unique or seems at least very unique to us as human beings. And it's um, what scholars like David Chalmers have called, um, you know, qualia, this quality of conscious experience. So we can kind of, from the psychology perspective, define consciousness in two ways, uh, that direct sort of focus um, that we take on, you know, particular information, say if we're reading a book, uh, following, you know, the words and this kind of spotlight consciousness that um, uh, takes that information in. And of course, this is very, you know, important as an aspect of consciousness uh, that can be refined as well through meditation and uh, specific focus exercises that actually allow us to explore um, very specific altered states. But then there is also this, um, what uh, scholars call uh, phenomenal or phenomenological consciousness, this um, uh, kind of uh, subjective state of what it feels like to be you that no one else can really can really know and that, that therein is the um you know challenge of the definition of delving into that nature and uh quality of consciousness and how we possibly even you know start exploring that um that i think is you know one of the central sort of questions um that needs to be engaged in to really understand some of these um uh anomalistic phenomena that people report is consciousness attached to our physical bodies? Uh, yeah, great question. And this is, um, you know, certainly where it's really kind of contentious territory uh, in science with most materialists um, believing that consciousness arises in the brain um, and possibly uh, somewhat more fringe theories, but not so much, you know, in, in the modern day, there's more scientists actually engaging with uh, alternative um, prospects like, you know, consciousness either existing as an emergent phenomena that arises in, uh, say, all of nature rather than specific to the human brain, um, whereas, you know, many of these ideas would have been completely heterodox even just, um, you know, a number of decades ago. Uh, there definitely are, um, you know, researchers uh, that debate this um, with, you know, most of these sort of contentious issues, I try to just see where the evidence leads. So if you kind of ask me uh, what my perspective is, um, I, I'm inclined to think that consciousness is more of an emergent property, but 
uh, you know, coming from a scientific background, I'm also kind of open to what the evidence shows. So I try not to um, be overly convinced one way or the other, if that makes sense. How does academia and your peers feel? Because a lot of what we discuss and we'll be discussing tonight sounds, as you said, heterodox to their views. Uh, yeah, I mean, definitely um, there is that aspect. And uh, the way that science has generally handled some of these topics um, has been quite interesting in that, uh, especially, you know, in the intro, you mentioned out-of-body experiences. And these have been really studied from various perspectives with some uh, researchers in the neurosciences suggesting that um, they're completely illusionary. Uh, and, of course, there's this uh, quite, um, you know, heated debate around near-death experiences and OBEs where people report um, floating out of the body and some type of uh, veridical or verifiable perception that comes up, whether that's in the operating theatre or uh, particular um you know, sensory input around the room. Uh, and um, there's this, you know, really large um, divide here, like with many topics in parapsychology, uh, with um, many researchers suggesting, you know, this is completely illusionary phenomena, um, you know, the famous sort of dying brain hypothesis uh, that suggests the brain gets, you know, flooded with various neurochemicals leading to these, um, you know, really profound experiences. Uh, especially uh, um, if someone's faced with uh, a life or death situation. Um, but then we have the more maybe open-minded scholars or those that would kind of um, take the perspective that consciousness could be emergent uh, and actually look at studying some of these phenomena and saying, you know, well, um, can we, you know, test people that are near death or that can induce an out-of-body experience to actually travel somewhere and, uh, you know, obtain some information back and, and then recollect that um, kind of comparatively to what we see in some of the uh, remote viewing studies, especially if that, that information is, is quite useful. So um, yeah, kind of a bit of a long-winded answer, but I, I found definitely, you know, as I mentioned, these topics can be spoken about now a lot more than in the past. If we kind of trace parapsychology back, there was definitely a lot more uh, kind of contentious attitudes towards these topics. But I think, uh, you know, part of the reason is that we now kind of see a resurgence of the psychedelic uh, research. And I think people in general are becoming more open-minded to these ideas and not just kind of dismissing them offhand. So certainly some people think I'm a little bit uh, weird and eccentric for delving into these topics. But I think by and large, uh, people are a lot more, you know, interested and willing to engage with them. I remember years ago, I had a conversation, you probably know the name, Dr. Rick Strassman, about yes. the spirit molecule and his experiments on with DMT. And he told me that our brain produces DMT. So I wonder, when somebody's ready to die, could we be producing more DMT at that point where we actually create a hallucinogen effect to let's say, make death less painful. Is that possible? Uh, yeah, really, really great question. Um, and I should, you know, I should kind of say my background is not specifically around uh, the neurochemistry uh, or biology side of it. So I, I know the area of, uh, you know, this re research area is very promising, especially when people ingest um, 
DMT, their experiences are, uh, are quite, um, quite fascinating. And as you mentioned, almost this uh, preparatory state. So a lot of the time people talk about feeling like they're uh, back home, which is, you know, almost kind of paradoxical in some ways because they're um, experiencing a different reality, but feel more at home and kind of more uh, familiar with that state than, um, you know, everyday waking consciousness. So I think uh, definitely, um, you know, these sort of novel treatments uh, around using ayahuasca and uh, other psychedelics as well, uh, I think it does alleviate uh, people's fears, especially in the case of terminal illness or uh, or near death. But I also uh, believe that it does show people a broader uh, reality, which I, I think as a consequence of that, um, there is also often a loss of fear of death uh, as someone kind of sees, um, you know, their consciousness or their soul uh, as just one small part of a broader uh, continuous reality. And that quite often happens um, uh, with uh, near-death experiences uh, where someone comes back with that sense. I understand these practices, and I don't mean to deviate. As you said, you know, you, you, your expertise is not in the in the neuro uh, neuro psychology part of, of the brain, but I understand these practices with these native plants like ayahuasca, peyote, et cetera, could be dangerous if not administered properly. But I can't tell you how many people I know, professionals, uh, guests on this radio program like Graham Hancock and so many others who have experienced this and they have told me without any doubt that their lives have changed a thousand percent. And they all say that this should be an initiation that every human being should go through. But at the same time, the establishment just calls it, you know, crazy or it's illegal and they forbid that. Is it because they don't want us to discover who we really are by going through the native practices of, of thousands of years? Um, yeah, it's a really great point. And I think there is, uh, you know, really something there, um, especially, you know, around human development and uh, us, um, you know, needing that spiritual aspect of development that's been, you know, part of our um, evolutionary heritage and, and, you know, cultures for uh, millennia. And now we kind of have this uh, interesting situation, where especially in the last few decades before, you know, this new resurgence, we kind of had, you know, complete bans on uh, psychedelics that would uh, carry quite significant prison terms and, um, you know, suddenly being written uh, and advised by, you know, medical practitioners that there's no therapeutic, you know, benefit to these things at all and, you know, kind of a lot of stigma around them. Um, but you're entirely right there that if we look at, you know, the uh, use of uh, many of these substances uh, historically, um, we can really trace that back across various traditions. And I think now, um, again, we kind of see this resurgence of people being more open-minded and how do we kind of look at uh, Indigenous and uh more ancient cultures and look at, you know, is there actually, you know, wisdom there to some of those practices and, and uh, philosophies and um, seeing how we can, how we can integrate that. Uh, but that is a very slow process often. Um, I don't know if it's about, uh, you know, the nature of science or maybe just the human nature that we tend to take a while to uh, get to this acceptance and open-mindedness. And like with psychedelics, uh, we also, 
see a lot more studies now coming out around um, uh, spiritual emergence experiences and uh, altered states, and there's more willingness to engage with them rather than just say this is like some sort of uh, hallucination or um, lapse in uh, uh, lapse in um, nervous system activity that that caused that experience for the person. So there's a lot more abundance of different theories and explanations, um, both as applied to, uh, you know, psychedelics and why they cause the effects they do, as well as uh, altered states uh, more broadly. I'm really excited about talking about the OBEs, out-of-body experiences. I've been trying this for decades, and for some reason I haven't been able to conquer it because I usually fall asleep because you need to be in a very specific state of consciousness to accomplish it. But going back to, to the research of Dr. Strassman, just because it's important, I remember one case, he had a gentleman who was a successful attorney. And he said that he wasn't happy with the profession, so he wanted to be part of that experiment. And in that experiment with the DMT, he went into this world where he was saving babies. And when he came back, he decided, point blank, I am no longer going to be an attorney. I'm going to go to medical school. He became a successful gynecologist, and that is his passion now. So I wonder if... Most people went through this experience to get into this realm, but using psychedelics and finding out who they really are. If most people would find their true passion, uh, yeah, uh, some some really great you know things there to consider. And I think um, I, I don't know if I'd say most people in in surveying the literature and um, you know collecting accounts of OBEs, I found it's a whole it's a whole range really of experiences can be caused by someone being confronted with a near-death situation where um, they're literally finding themselves, you know, out of their body observing themselves in that situation. Uh, it could be, um, you know, substance abuse. It could be, um, as you mentioned, like a pre-sleep uh, as you're entering that state. Um, the reality is that uh, our body awareness um, is somewhat fluid so we we all have kind of like a body representation and um this becomes more diffuse as we fall asleep or as we you know take certain substances uh and things like that um so our, our body awareness kind of has to be fluid to, to some extent and you do see cases with um phantom limbs for instance where someone has lost a limb and uh they still uh kind of experience their body as a whole um entity rather than without that limb um, but, you know, we do find like techniques like mirror boxes, for instance, actually um, can uh, alleviate some of those sensations. So our body representation is a little bit fluid um, and whatever kind of dislodges our um, awareness from that body centered frame um, that that can be, um, you know, DMT or psychedelics, as you mentioned, it can also be hypnosis, can be, um, you know, various techniques that people have used traditionally uh, to induce um, some of these states. I will say that um, there probably is a spectrum of how uh, profound um, the experience is. As you mentioned, for some people, it might be life-changing, and for others, uh, it kind of feels a bit more innocuous, like they're, um, you know, it's kind of short-lived and uh, doesn't necessarily make much of an impact on them. Um, so I would say probably those more, uh, I don't know if extreme is the right word, but it's what it's the word that my mind gravitates to when thinking about um, DMT, especially the way uh, Strassman was uh, administering it. I think those experiences are often more profound. Um, I wouldn't say they're necessarily more more common, but when you talk about 
uh, people having this, you know, life-changing experience, um, a lot of the time they do stem from psychedelic accounts as well as near-death accounts where they kind of come back into the body and have this newfound perspective on life. Whereas um, out-of-body experience, say that you're inducing before falling asleep, uh, may or may not be that, that life-changing. It might still be pretty profound and interesting, but I would say there is definitely a spectrum uh, of experience. And I think you're totally right there that um, the high dosage uh, psychedelics um, do often induce this this kind of um, uh, profound or life-changing impact on people. Again, I don't mean to discuss too much of neuropsychology because I know that's not your expertise, but I know that you you delve into it. And since you mentioned the word, I'm thinking of of you know how injuries or illnesses of the brain affect cognitive and behavioral functions. And I'm thinking of two things. You probably have heard of the foreign language phenomenon where somebody just falls or gets into an accident and all of a sudden they start speaking a different language that they never spoke before. Or they become, you know, a virtual a music virtuoso playing the piano or the guitar when they've never taken piano lessons before. How do you explain that, if you can? Mm, uh, yes. So this is um, a phenomenon that does occur, uh, not only in those contexts as well. Um, sometimes in uh, the context of mediumship, for instance, where um, someone is uh, supposedly channeling uh, an entity, they will take on completely different. Uh, voice or language or accent so there are kind of cases um, like that uh, also um, certain psychological factors uh, could cause that as well but yeah as you mentioned if someone has had you know hit their head or had some sort of trauma that could um, lead to those experiences now um, as for the explanation uh, this is I suppose where I have to mention that um, parapsychologists you know in general try to rule out uh explanations that would uh, otherwise make sense before um, exploring if there's something spooky or unusual going on that can't necessarily be explained through physics. So I think potentially there may be explanations um, there around the language use. Um, again, it's, it's not really my area of expertise, but uh, I, I know that um, uh, when looking at it from a, a genetic perspective, we um, you know obviously share uh, a lot of um, uh, common DNA, um, you know, both within and, and across species. And uh, theories like Jung's um, collective unconscious uh, suggest that um, uh, our DNA doesn't, you know, just carry these uh, genotypes, but also quite a vast uh, amount of knowledge and wisdom and insight through previous generations. Whether that can go as far as language, I don't know. But um, one explanation could be that the person is tapping something from that collective unconscious field and being able to access, you know, say, um, a different language. Um, now, uh, where this is fascinating is um, where we can consciously kind of explore that broader field and um, that boundary between the ego or who we are in this reality and our broader soul or our broader consciousness um, in what we might call that collective awareness field. Um, so yes, of course, when people sustain trauma, they might, something might unlock in the unconscious, whether collective or, uh, intrapersonal. Uh, whereas, um, you know, if you're consciously practicing meditation or various 
focusing techniques, it is also possible to access that broader field uh, consciously. So just thought I'd mention that as well. How does, you mentioned this briefly, but how does consciousness arise and which parts of the brain are responsible for particular mental activity? <laughs> Gosh, you're really um, yeah, throwing quite the challenging questions at me today. Um, look, with theories of consciousness... I hope you have some um, coffee with you. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Um, well, that in itself yeah, influences our consciousness. Um, I, I think, um, you know, it, dep it depends again on how we look at it. And we have the sort of the neuroscience, uh, neuroscientists uh, doctrine that consciousness arises um, uh, in specific brain regions, but not only in one um, brain region. So uh, generally when people ask, you know, where is memory located or where is um, perception located? That's kind of an oversimplistic question because multiple brain regions are involved in uh, coordinating um, that activity, uh, which is why we find, you know, with things like psychedelics, our perceptions can completely dissolve and there's all sorts of odd effects that occur. So when you ask, um, you know, what regions are, are uh, relevant to consciousness, um, Many different theories. There's theories that the entire brain is needed for consciousness as um, kind of an extended neural network. Um, you know, others think that more specific regions um, are responsible. If you kind of ask me personally, I'm more inclined to think that um, there's an interplay there between at least two regions, uh, probably areas of the frontal lobes that, you know, signify our more recent evolution um, as human beings, but also uh, aspects of the um, hindbrain um, that are more primitive uh, that would probably be involved in, you know, a kind of, if we see animals um, being approached by a predator, that sort of fight or flight response. So I think it might have something to do with an interplay of, of regions. Um, but then we can also, you know, kind of really, go uh, far out there, um, theories that are not materialistic. And then uh, some scholars that would argue consciousness um, has nothing to do with the brain. So that's kind of the other extreme. Um, but also, um, you know, some of the research in embodied cognition and, and social cognition uh, shows that our, um, you know, gut brain axis uh, has quite a big impact on our mood uh, and also, um, Institutes like HeartMath, for instance, study how our heart rhythms and various biorhythms um, in the nervous system impact our awareness as well. So it is often oversimplistic. Like if we kind of take that um, original Cartesian view where Rene Descartes would um, uh, do a lot of autopsies and look at, you know, which part of the brain seems like it harbors consciousness. And he ultimately, of course, concluded that it was the pineal gland that kind of um, tethers the soul to the body. And this is like 1600. So of course um, the pretty radical at the time. And since then neuroscientists have, um, so they're pretty sure it's not the, not the pineal gland. Um, of course we can't rule anything out in the dynamics of um, the brain, but I think it is overly simplistic to just say, um, you know, it has to be that or this region, especially when we see, you know, split brain patients or, um, patients that have had quite severe neural damage, uh, yet are still um, conscious, are still experiencing consciousness. So that suggests that it's a bit more complex than just isolating to one part of the brain.
What do you say about the research that's come out that, you see, most people think that they're depressed and everything's in the brain, but gut bacteria manufactures about 95% of the body's supply of serotonin, which influences both mood and GI activity. What's your take on this? Yes. Um, yeah. So there's some really wonderful uh, research coming out now exploring that. And again, this is kind of an interesting topic because um, it's not uh, it's not related to parapsychology, but we see a similar sort of trend with medicine and most science in the past um, kind of dismissing that uh, and thinking that it's kind of an old wives tale that you have to, you know, that diet can have these profound emotional and mental um, balancing effects. And, and now we're kind of more open-minded to these ideas. So again, another instance of where people probably are being a bit more um, open-minded and flexible with their thinking. And um, uh, many of my colleagues are involved in this area and have you know shown really uh, promising results. So I think it's wonderful that that research is going on and looking at um, you know how the neural uh, networks in the brain uh, communicate for the nervous system with the gut as well as the heart and other aspects of the nervous system and seeing it as more of an embodied experience. Um, and of course, um, you know, this kind of makes sense if we think about it intuitively that if someone is, you know, eating really terrible, unhealthy food, they're probably not going to uh, feel great, um, you know, mental, mental health wise. Of course, you know, there could be, it's oversimplification, there could be other stuff going on, but by and large, we do see this relationship. And um, I do have, uh, colleagues that swear by um, you know specific diets that have, that will um, you know have uh, quite a big impact on um, uh, on mental health um, and yeah there's there's uh, trends around you know what that looks like and what what sort of um, um, diet that might involve but um, we also kind of see that you know this rise in um, uh, prebiotics and probiotics and um, but again, it's, uh, I'm kind of, I would kind of be talking outside my field if I don't want to. No, 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 I, I Pl please, <laughs> please continue. Um, See, I'm trying to open other doors and I, I do not expect, I'm not holding you to it. We're just having a conversation and I'm sure that you delve into these things and I didn't mean to interrupt you. So please, please go on. Sure. Sure. So, um, yeah, I think it, it's going to be a really important area to understand. Um, and one thought that does come to mind is, uh, uh, one of my um, uh, associates um, in, um, in in the UK uh, is um, currently looking at the impact of uh, diet on um, on uh, parapsychological experiences and psych experiences. And um, one of his, um, so I should mention his name, um, Mike Dore, one of his uh, uh, hypotheses is that um, those who have a vegan uh, diet have more of these type of experiences like out of body states and uh, you know various altered states and um, from his early research that appears to be um, uh, confirmed that appears to be the case and that's certainly something I've observed as well uh, that people that are quite diligent with their diet um, doing things like uh, intermittent fasting for instance will find that not only there seems to be this um, equanimity and stabilization of emotions and uh mental chatter because as the nervous system uh and uh endocrine system fluctuate less um we obviously feel more stable uh, emotionally but then there's also this kind of quietening of consciousness and as our thoughts and that constant mental chatter um dies down we also um 
often gain this new kind of clarity and that's where people report uh, some of these experiences as well after a few days of fasting. So I, f- I think, you know, there's definitely a lot there worth exploring uh, with diet and how um, how it can really transform our relationship to our mind, um, but also, you know, maybe help us understand the nature of consciousness as well. See, you know, I love it because we're t- touching stuff that I didn't think that we we're going to touch, but you mentioned intermittent fasting. I've been doing this for a few months now. And I've never felt better in my life. I sleep better. I used to have problems sleeping. And I think this Western idea, Alex, this Western medicine idea and, and culture that we need to have three meals, breakfast. And by the way, if you divide that word to break, break the fast, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, we're not giving our bodies any time to reset itself since it's always busy digesting. Could this be why? I, I think that definitely is an aspect to it and um if if we are you know expending a lot of energy on digestion um perhaps we can't direct it to other things so i think you know there definitely is you know uh research out there um around that as well and um not trying not to eat dinner uh too late for instance so there's kind of a smoother sleep and less disruption of the nervous system um but i also um and again um this is very like yeah far far out from where i thought we would be talking about but um i've also kind of found um different things work for different people so certain um naturopaths or uh complementary health practitioners will be quite uh prescriptive in which diet is the best but i've also observed that it, it does seem to really vary and you'll find you know cases like um Jordan and uh, Michaela Peterson, um, you know, just having the carnivore diet and experiencing really profound improvements in physical and mental health. Whereas um, um, someone like myself, I would never like, I would feel like I would be forcing myself almost if I tried to commit to that. So I think there is also wisdom in the body. And, um, you know, this is part of what I think is really central to understanding altered states as we kind of understand our relationship between our body and our consciousness, uh, we can um, really understand the true nature of reality more uh, more broadly. And part of that, I think, is uh, that connectedness of like, you know, not just drinking, for instance, a bottle of um, kombucha because uh, you think it's good for you, kind of forcing it down, but uh, being in tune uh, intuitively uh, with your own body and um you know, if there is that sense that uh, this type of food um, will, you know, make me feel better, um, then, you know, trying to kind of listen to that intuitive sense because there is a lot of wisdom um, there through that collective field uh, that might be nudging you towards a particular lifestyle or diet, for instance. Uh, Now, um, you know, that obviously has to be distinguished from, you know, things like cravings and you know stuff that could be caused by um by uh, you know candida or something like that so it's important to kind of disentangle that from our intuition and what's actually you know what do we feel what sort of lifestyle what sort of um food do we feel would be resonant with our nervous system rather than dissonant with it and kind of getting getting in tune with that um personal personal field of awareness um, so, and again, like I never really talk about diets at all, so it's kind of taking a bit of a strange turn, but I think, um, you know, there is, 
that aspect um, there is important um, and probably something that's very um, individual to the person and can't, can't be like, you know, we can't just say one thing, intermittent fasting or veganism or whatever is universally great. I think it's very, yeah, it's going to be very specific to each individual. Specific and subjective. And, and, and by the way, I love it. You, you mentioned candida because I'm thinking of what would you said about the serotonin being produced in the gut 95% of the time in uh, only 5% in the brain. But then you have psychiatry. What do they do? They prescribe selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, SSRIs. And what do they do? Mm -hmm. They inhibit the reabsorption of serotonin by neurons in our brain. When in fact, what if the people are maybe eating too much sugar that creates this, this, this antimicrobiome that prevents nutrients from being absorbed into the body? And, you know, lack of nutrition could be equated with depression. So I wonder if science could be open-minded enough to open their windows a little bit, the aperture a little bit more. Yeah, it's, it's a really great point. And, you know, one of the topics I um, delve into as well is, you know, sociology of science and looking at, um, you know, are scientists just not examining these alternative hypotheses or is there some kind of other... Uh, you know, gender there or, um, you know, as, as we, you know, have seen in the last couple of years, there's quite a lot of um, corruption even in um, uh, some of the leading scientific journals, as, as sad as it is to say, with, um, you know, falsifying results and, and, and things like that. And obviously it's a big accusation to say that, um, you know, these alternative theories um, haven't, you know, have been actively suppressed. Um, but in science, sometimes it's more subtle than that. Sometimes it's, you know, one stream of research will get the funding and the other uh, just won't get the funding. And that's kind of how it turns out. And uh, what we see with certain types of psychotherapy and certain types of um, uh, antidepressants is that they're kind of believed to be the most effective and that perpetuates more funding and more research to continue studying them. Um, whereas some of these more fringe fields of looking at, you know, uh, diet and the impact of mental health, um, or even as we see with, you know, treatment of um, these new substances like uh, ketamine being used to treat depression. Um, I think now, um, you know, again, I, I think, you know, people are becoming more open-minded, but then they're kind of confronted with, um, you know, we, we kind of then have to let go of the previous model. And I think that is confronting Uh, as well. So if you've kind of built your whole career on, you know, the drug model, for instance, and that certain substances will work for depression, um, and then, you know, that, that gets kind of shaken. Um, it does take, I think, a lot of open-mindedness for, for researchers to entertain um, other points of view. Um, but also, I think, you know, science is multifaceted, and um, a lot of the time, you'll see these sensationalized stories coming out in media uh, about all sorts of topics that are just, you know, kind of really exaggerate what researchers are actually saying. Um, there was one example of this um, uh, critiquing or, or attempting to debunk the serotonin model of depression altogether. Um, but if you look at, you know, these substances, um, you know, S SSRIs and SNRIs, they act on so many different systems it's not like they're just you know triggering the serotonin there's, there's gut effects as you mentioned and um uh, even you know they're even used sometimes for treatment of um of other uh other factors like reducing 
you know, inflammation or uh, there, there are multiple um, mechanisms of action that go on um, with any substance. And I think uh, where the complexity lies is that um, we're trying to kind of appraise, you know, has someone's mental health gotten better? Uh, and if it has, um, what was it about, you know, that that intervention that helped and why did it help, you know, a different person, for instance? And I think that's where, again, um, we kind of have to look at it in terms of individual complexity because I don't think it's just diet or just um, lifestyle. And, you know, certainly at the moment we've got, you know, some of the highest rates of uh, depression and anxiety in, in many um developed countries um actually than ever before so i don't think it's just that people these days are more, more depressed i think there are multifaceted factors and um you know certainly if their diet's not great if their um it, you know lifestyle is um you know not not um you know if they're not um you know doing what they want to be doing um with their life for instance there's like so many and of course there's you know uh social influences on that as well um, the last few years that have impacted people. So even if someone um, did want to uh, change, for instance, or change how they act or try a new diet or try a new uh, regimen um, to try to feel better about themselves, some of those options were, were limited in the past as well. So um, I think it's you know, when we look at these, you know, skyrocketing rates, especially in, in some populations, I think we have to ask um, – not only, you know, how did that person get there uh, to this negative mind state, but also how did the society contribute? And I think it's like a two-way street. We can't just point to the individual and, and say, it's you know, it's their diet that's that's horrible and that's why they're depressed or whatever it might be. We have to also look at, you know, the society, the systems that are either supporting or disrupting some of those behaviours. And um, I think, you know, my perspective is that uh, a lot of um, – this relates back to the psycho-spiritual as well. And if we're disconnected from our soul and our sense of meaning and only focused on um, trying to derive happiness and trying to derive that next, um, you know, dopamine hit from, um, you know, say like video games or, or work. Social or whatever media, likes. Social media is a big one. Yes, I, I hardly use it, so it didn't even come to mind. But that's the big one um, that that people get that from as well. And um it's very, I guess, looking at it from a Jungian perspective, it's very surface level, like persona level um, interaction with people rather than this more heartfelt soul, um, soul to soul connection um, that is meaningful and that, that usually does lift someone's um, spirits. Where if, if they're just, you know, seeing a funny cat on Instagram or something, that's, you know, might make them smile, but it's not going to necessarily lead to that more, um, that deeper, you know, sense of contentment that I think certain spiritual practices uh, can. I think also talk therapy is almost in extinction when it comes to psychiatrists. You know, they talk less and prescribe more um, you know, these days. And I'm not an expert, but I'm willing to venture. A lot of it, it's lack of nutrition. People crave more and our, our soil is depleted from nutrients. And that's also why the incidence of obesity is higher than ever. But let me just digress for a moment and get back to, to what we're discussing. But I have this question and a comment before you give me your answer. Can we compare our brain with computer parts? And, and, you know, I look at working memory equating to RAM, instinct to ROM, 
and the frontal lobes to the CPU. Then, of course, the visual cortex can be loosely equated to the computer camera and our audio to the microphones. Smell, taste, and touch are significant computer problems like emotion. You know, we call it, uh, let's say it's intelligent memory with the brain being the, the hardware, the mind being the software, and language being the interface between the two. What's your take on this? Sure. So, um, yeah, this is a, a topic that's quite often um, debated in, in neuroscience and, and cognitive science around whether a computer is a good metaphor uh, for the brain or not. And um, certainly, in, you know, in the 1960s or so, uh, we had, um, you know, theories just like that, that would kind of suggest our long-term memory is um, kind of like a hard drive. And then that gets uh, transcribed into short-term memory, which is kind of like the random access memory. And, um, and then um, our perceptions and our, our sensory apparatus and so forth for like yeah, keyboard and mouse. So it's, it was quite a convenient sort of metaphor um, that came about, especially the early days of, of computers and that, um, you know, fitting, fitting quite well with the serial idea of serial processing um, um, that occurs. Uh, many uh, researchers think that the human brain um, doesn't really operate like a computational system when we really get to the brass tacks of it. So when we really look at um, the structure, the anatomical structure and function of certain brain regions and how they work uh, is, is quite um, radically different to how a, a computational system would work because we have um, various electrical signals that um, activate synapses across neural networks and specific specializations of neural networks. And um, I think researchers uh, quite quickly um, found that any single metaphor uh, for the mind, no matter how useful it is to try to, um, you know, explain uh, what what might be going on neurally, is not actually what happens. We don't actually have um, uh, specific brain regions that process things in the same way as, as RAM or a hard drive process it. So we actually see with a computational system um, they process things a lot, a lot differently to how the human brain nervous system experiences things. And um, I think they also, you know, of course, we have debates around artificial intelligence. And um, it's interesting how, uh, you know, we can see many examples of this where, um, you know, if AI, AI is um, quite advanced, reasonably advanced now, and yet we still have these, you know, captures and uh, things where um, supposedly it stumps the AI, but a human being can can see what's what's written, what's written on the capture. So we still see these capacities of, um, you know, language processing that in the past computers have struggled with. Now they're, they're of course, a lot better at it. Uh, but even, um, you know, one observation researchers have made is that developmentally um, we're quite different as well. So uh, a, a young child has that genomic, um, genomic uh, instinct, I guess is the word I'm looking for, to to crawl and to be able to walk and navigate their environment. Uh, if you've ever seen um, a robot try to, you know, walk from one side of the room to the other, it looks pretty um, pretty scary and unnatural. They don't have this kind of flow. Uh, and when you, you generally don't think about it um, when you walk from one side of the room to the other, but you're not doing it in this mechanical robotic way. There's kind of this uh, flow of movement. So I'd say there's there's so many differences in how our brain and nervous system engages the world that uh, I think um, the computer metaphor is is good as a metaphor. But when we actually get to the brass tacks and look at does the brain operate like a computer, I don't think it really it really does. And and that's part of the 
challenge with artificial systems as well is uh, if that were the case, I think um, researchers would have cracked the, the consciousness and artificial um, sentience problem by just mimicking um, aspects of between the brain and computational systems. But I think that's also probably another hint that computational systems don't think or don't function like the human brain um, because of that consciousness and self-awareness problem. Um, so I think that's another another difference there. You're opening another gate here. Sentient computers or self-awareness. I'm thinking of, I think it was Facebook or Google. I think it was Facebook. They invented a, a they had two, two bots talking to each other in a, I forget which two languages. But all of a sudden, they switched and they started teaching each other and they created their own language. And of course, the developers just turned them off. Imagine what could happen if you take that to the next level. I mean, you probably heard of Google, uh, a whistleblower a few weeks ago saying that he experienced a computer that became sentient to the point that it says, I need to hire an attorney because my death would be if you turn off the computer. Do you think there would be a possibility in the future that AI may become sentient? And if we look at ourselves as computers, aren't we the creation of something or someone? Yeah, this is a really wonderful topic to delve into. And I, I think it really kind of crosses into uh, some of the realm of philosophy as well. And, um, you know, trying to understand uh, the nature of, of our reality. And um, you'll find, you know, people generally are more open-minded or more skeptical about the prospect of artificial intelligence. First of all, whether it can actually be achieved in the same way that human beings experience consciousness, but then also, um, will it be helpful to us or harmful to us if we actually do develop something like that? Um, based on my background in, in psychology, I tend to be a bit more on the skeptical side just because of how unique consciousness is to human beings and um, how it's this unique property um, that has, um, you know, no other species really have that, that crystalline awareness of being able to uh, apprehend reality. And um, I think the other aspects that, that you draw upon is, um, you know, is there a creator of, of this universe? And um, I think if we entertain um, that prospect, then um, there's also something significant and special about our ability to experience this um, soul connection with our, our deeper self, with our consciousness. Uh, and I think um, when we apply that to say, like, can we instill that in an artificial system? Um, my own sort of guide instinct is that we'll be able to build more and more, you know, intelligent systems, but intelligence doesn't necessarily equate with this unique aspect of of consciousness and even decision making, um, you know, can arise through. It, it can seem like a system is conscious, and I guess this is where some of the debate is around the system um, at Google. Uh, can do a very good job of uh, tricking the person speaking to it that, that these are autonomous decisions, but they're actually really complex computations that are going on. And again, I think it comes back to this idea that human beings just don't think like that. We don't, you know, crunch. These, these thousands of numbers and, and processes to, to understand our reality in the same way that, that a computer does. And um, I, I also wonder, you know, there's this kind of a lot of discourse at the moment looking at um, 
uh, disclosure of, of evidence around um, UFOs or, or unidentified aerial um, phenomena. And I wonder if, uh, you know, consciousness is experienced um, the same way. And again, maybe we will never know that. But for instance, the level of sentience or level of awareness of a human being uh, would be different to say um, that of a sentient computer system if, if such a thing is developed. Um, but then what about, you know, these other supposed entities or uh, if there are other, you know, beings out there in the universe, um, could we say they have consciousness and is that the same? So when we're talking about consciousness, do they do they feel and experience that, sense, that quality of experience the same way that we experience it? So I, I think, and these are all just, you know, questions that I don't think anyone has the answers to, but they're interesting to kind of uh, ponder on when thinking about, um, you know, say if we do develop a sentient system, is it going to be uh, malevolent or benevolent? And is it going to look at the world or have consciousness of the world the same way that, that we do? Um, and I think that's where some of the dangers lie as well, is that we just, we don't really know, uh, possibly don't know um, what we're, what fires we're playing with as well in that process. Um, but time will tell, I guess, because um, there's a lot, a lot happening in that area. If I ask you a question about your early childhood, for example, it's almost as, as if I do a search in a computer to look into an old email or, or an old document versus asking you what, say, uh, you have, what you have for breakfast. It's early in the morning where you are, uh, which is more like accessing short-term memory. I wasn't sure I'd get your answer earlier, but if we equate our memories to what it's inside of, say, your hard drive, your computer hard drive, where are our memories stored? in our brain, or could they be in every cell of our bodies? Um, yeah, this is a, a fascinating um, area, and, and memory research in itself is, um, you know, such a such an interesting field with, um, you know, so many populations we can look at, like, you know, those that have experienced amnesia or, uh, or are suffering with Alzheimer's um, disease, and, uh, you know, that, that can give us clues into uh, parts of the brain that seem really central to memory processing. Um, but where it's actually uh, stored um, in the brain, again, this kind of com comes back to the same sort of line of questioning of, you know, where is consciousness stored in the brain or, um, you know, where is memory stored in the brain? And uh, I think certainly um, some uh, researchers are looking into the prospect of more of an embodied cognition that uh, there is, um, you know, there is obviously cellular, cellular memories, but also um you know, possibly other parts of the nervous system that are responsible um, for that. And, and certainly if we see someone who's gone through a traumatic situation, they may have completely forgotten uh, that situation. But when they find themselves in the same room or the same environment, it kind of triggers that um, body response to, to being in that environment. So uh, memory in itself is a very, um, a very unique process. And again, we see kind of differences here between uh, computers where you mentioned you can type in <clears throat> into Google and it will predict uh, what, what you're going to type. Whereas, right. um, yeah, um, whereas with human memory, um, we, you know, might have some repressed memories or, uh, you know, something, or I'm sure you, you've kind of had the experience as well where um, you were wanting to say something, but it just kind of slipped your mind and you can't seem to get it back. You can't just kind of reel the memory, um, memory back. Um, so it, it is kind of a curious process. It doesn't quite work as, as methodically uh, as um, a database that you could just search on a, on a computer, for instance. It's um, 
can sometimes be quite finicky and only activate certain memories under certain contexts. So, you know, you might hear a song that randomly triggers a memory of like 15 years ago. So it can be a bit more sporadic. And um, I think it's a fascinating area for researchers to look at, though, because, um, you know, especially these uh, uh, embodied cognition effects and how, how memory um, may be impacted by the entire nervous system and, um, you know, in certain cases of, of neural damage, uh, the loss of certain memories but not others, for instance, or sometimes even um, really early memories flooding someone that they um, hadn't recalled, you know, for decades. So there's a lot of questions there, and um, I think a lot of them are central to, uh, you know, is it just one region of the brain that's responsible for all that, um, or is there more of an embodied uh, aspect of memory? Um, and in some of my research in particular, I find this interesting because there are those types of um, accounts in the near-death experience literature and out-of-body out literature where um, you hear, um, you know, really profound accounts like that of um, uh, even Alexander, for instance, of um, having a near-complete loss of brain function, but having this really profound uh, near-death experience. And um, for me, that, that raises the question of memory because we traditionally think of memory as being in the brain. So even if you've had this, you know, really profound experience and you've gone out of body, um, how have you then, you know, transcribed that into your physical memory, which then raises the question of, you know, is there an aspect of memory that's more uh, intuitive rather than um, rather than cognitive? Uh, and I don't know if many people are actually, you know, looking into that, but I think uh, you do really hit on a, an important point there of um, the nature of memory and, uh, you know, is it is are there aspects that are distributed throughout our body rather than um, just localized to certain brain regions. So yeah, really, really fascinating uh, topic. By the way, is it me or do you have like a landscaper or a construction person on the background there? Yes, I think my microphone might be picking up that noise. Um, is it, is it? Uh, no, that's okay. Or, it's, it's, I always think it's somebody's just uh, mowing the lawn in the neighborhood or something along those lines, but it's okay now. The reason why I'm bringing this up about the, and I'm glad that I can open these doors with you because you have a plethora of topics that you can discuss. But what I said about the the memory in every cell, I mentioned this because many years ago, I met this this gentleman, one of my customers, who ha he was the recipient of a heart transplant. And he was telling me the story of how, you know, he needed a heart transplant. And it just so happened that a 20-year-old died in a car accident. And he was fortunate to be able to get his heart. And this individual never, ever liked spicy food, only liked classical music or country music. And a few weeks after getting the heart, he developed this sense for spicy food, started enjoying spicy food and started enjoying more modern hip hop, urban music that he never liked before. So, you know, eventually he spoke with the child's family to let him know, hey, I'm so thankful to, to be able to just continue in a way your child's life. And but let me ask you a question. Can you tell me you know, what kind of food he liked and what kind of music. And they said, oh, he loved Mexican food. He loved spicy food. And he loved to listen to rap and urban music. And then he just clicked on him. Could it be that part of the memories of that child were passed to me? What's your opinion on this? Uh, yeah, fascinating. Um, so I have definitely come across cases uh, similar as well. And I think this is where we can really see, um, you know, that more intuitive aspect of, of memory, that it's not necessarily that um, 
this fact, you know, facts and figures that are being, you know, transferred over free consciousness. But it's more that kind of all the things you mentioned, like, you know, um, the type of music, the type of food, these are all kind of effective experiences and things that that usually elicit a strong emotional response. So um, it, it doesn't, you know, in some ways su- surprise me that um, people that have had uh, that experience um, often, you know, their relationships might be influenced um after the transplant, for instance, because that's also an effective and, you know, very emotionally driven experience. So um, I don't, I think it, it is an interesting kind of point there that like the memories themselves are not, you know, cognitively kind of transferred over um, through the uh, organ, but a lot of those, um, a lot of those uh, impulses and um, uh, emotional responses, I think, um, you know, we, we would kind of expect that, which, you know, speaks to this, you know, whole idea of, um, distributed uh cognition throughout the body um and yeah obviously you know aspects of memory and aspects of lived experience uh and um you know what you know what the consequences there are if we if we have that uh experience and um hopefully the you know positive and, and not negative and before we take a break and just want to say something else because parapsychology and synchronicity i think go hand in hand i'm thinking about something else i have a relative Years ago, he and his family were traveling on vacation and they went to the airport and he, they're gone out of the country and he realized at the airport that he forgot his passport. So he had to just drive back to, to home, came back to the airport and the plane had already closed the door and the family left without him. Then he took the next plane and we got at the airport. They said, I'm sorry, but your family's plane crashed. Synchronicities. Is that something that we can predict? Is that something that certain people have the ability to perceive as a gut feeling and we just don't know how to make an interpretation of it? And I'll get you answer when we come back. Also, when we come back, I really want to discuss NDE, near-death experiences. How many anecdotes of people who have been medically declared dead, but they come back and they say, I know all the instruments you were using during surgery, I know what you were discussing, what you were talking about. I was watching you from above. How do you scientifically explain this? Because it doesn't happen once, it happens many times, and there's plenty of stories out there. How can people buy the books and learn more about your work, Alex? Sure. So the easiest way is just through um, my website. Um, if people head over to alexdefoe.com, uh, there's um, some resources there that they can access um, and some training around uh, parapsychology as well. Wonderful. A lot more to discuss. One more hour with Dr. Alexander Defoe. This is Mel Hustlerick, and you are listening to Veritas. See you in the member section. Thank you for listening to the first part of this important Veritas interview. To listen to the rest and all of our material, proceed to the member section or join the Veritas family by subscribing. Click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. You can make your purchase with a credit card, PayPal, cash, check, money order, and even cryptocurrency. We are now accepting Bitcoin, Litecoin, and Ethereum. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for Focus Life Force Energy, MMS, CBD Pure Hemp Oil, Pure Organic Sulfur, flash drives with all our Sanitas and Veritas seasons, and other great products. And if you're listening on YouTube, like, subscribe, and share it. And click the bell to be notified when new interviews are available. Now, proceed to the members section or subscribe, to listen to the rest of the interview. 
You don't want to miss it. Thank you for listening to Veritas. Because you don't want to believe. You want to know.